0: Well, I took that vote for the Safer's Community Act for two reasons, and I'd vote for it again today, tomorrow, and the next day. One, it would have prevented the Uvalde shooting. Boom, right there. If that bill was law before the Uvalde shooting, it would have prevented the Uvalde shooting. If that's not enough for you, man, it's hard to go to number two. But if, if that isn't enough for you, number two, it would not and will not infringe on the Second Amendment. Congressman Tony Gonzalez is a man on a mission. And in a time of hyperpartisanship
1: in Washington, D.C., when most are focused on ideology, Gonzalez seems more focused on trying to get results. His efforts have earned him respect as one of the most bipartisan members of Congress. Resistance does not deter him. Criticism does not bother him. And opposition to his ideas only seems to sharpen his resolve. Maybe it's his background in the United States Navy, but he is mission-focused and mission-driven on moving the country forward. He has a lot on his plate. He's a husband and a father of six children, and he travels back and forth from Washington, D.C. to the largest congressional district in Congress that is larger than 30 U.S. states. He also has a lot to say on a lot of topics, topics like the people of Uvalde.
0: We're still healing. I literally was in Uvalde County two days ago and uh, everyone is still healing from things immigration when the united states and mexico have a strong dialogue we are both better for it so less chicken dance and more of solutions and what he wants to see in the next
1: republican nominee for president of the united states
0: and i'm looking for someone that is ultimately going to put this country back on the right track
1: we will also be talking about presidential candidate nikki haley and what she learned from touring the Congressman's District. With that, it's time to get Beyond the Bite with Congressman Tony Gonzalez of the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. The last time I saw you was in Washington when the Texas Association of Business had their annual fly-in, and you were preparing for a trip to Mexico City with Senator Cornyn, Senator Cinema, and a larger delegation. Tell me about that trip.
0: Yeah, I, I've been on uh, quite a few different CODELs. Uh, Senator Cornyn does it right. That mix, it was uh, six, eight senators, four members of the House, six Republicans, five Democrats and an independent. I mean, that doesn't happen. And so uh, we go to Mexico City and and I've I've met with all different types of heads of state before. Uh, Prime Minister Modi, former President Moon of, uh, of uh, South Korea, the list goes on and on. And this dialogue with uh, López Obrador was a dialogue, and he doesn't do that. I mean, this guy, he if you don't know who the Mexican president is, he's basically a socialist Trump is his style, right? He gets up there, and it's a one-way conversation. Uh, he, he did it with Biden. He did it with Mayorkas when Mayorkas visited. He did it with uh, Secretary Blinken. That's his style. So going in, I was a little apprehensive to go, look, I'm, I'm not here to be— uh, spoken to. Like, this is a dialogue. And that's what it turned out to be. It was a four-hour dialogue going back and forth. I give a lot of credit to uh, Senator Cornyn for putting that together. What did you come away with after having all those meetings? Because
1: uh, you're right, he he takes a different approach uh, to think President uh, López Obrador than his predecessors.
0: Yeah. I mean, usually these meetings are maybe an hour and it's this chicken dance of, you know, oh, you're better. No, I'm better. No, we're better together. Like it's this whole nuance still. And there was some of that. Don't get me wrong. But there was also a lot of genuine dialogue. And I'll give you a specific example. Uh, one of the things, you know, they're, they're kind of showing a slide deck and they're saying that the border crisis is getting better. It was as if I was sitting and listening to the Biden administration had given this slide deck. Right. They're like, no, the border, the border crisis is getting better. The numbers are going down. Everything is an orderly process. And I kind of, you know, like, "Oh, I've got something to say. And I go, it's not getting better. And that week there was a family in Ozona that had gotten killed. A smug Ozona is 120 miles from the border. It's a small West Texas town, usually pretty sleepy. And uh, uh, on this day is about uh, about about a month ago. Now, there was a smuggler going 100 miles an hour through town and he wrecks into this truck in that truck is a grandmother and her seven year old granddaughter. They just came from a play date and they were heading home and they were killed. There was also two migrants that were killed as well. And so I'm going that was fresh on my mind. I'm going, no, that's not orderly. And also, if you remember a few weeks ago. There was about a thousand, mostly Venezuelans that had bum rushed the Paso del Norte bridge in El Paso, in El Paso. That had literally just happened. And so I go, I gave, I gave those two examples, but I also, it it wasn't, I wasn't there to place blame. I wasn't there to, to kind of uh, deflect. It was to have a dialogue and to go, Hey, when the United States and Mexico have a strong dialogue, we are both better for it. So less chicken dance. And more of solutions. And uh, I thought that was a good. We talked about other things, too. We talked about trade. We talked about water. I mean, you know how important a lot of these things are to border communities. It's not just security. It's all these other aspects of it as well. But the fact that you had 12 members of Congress sitting down with the president of Mexico, Mexico runs things a little different. Everything goes through him. I mean, he literally is like a king almost. You know, everything has to come before the king in order to get a yay or nay. He doesn't delegate down to his secretaries in most cases. So having that level of dialogue with the person that's going to make the decisions, I thought was very helpful.
1: Once you came back, it wasn't that long before you hosted presidential candidate, Ambassador Nikki Haley. I know she talked about in the press conference you all held. That was an eagle pass.
0: It was in the Eagle Pass was uh, the presser was in Eagle Pass. Yes.
1: Okay. And you had taken her to Hondo, Del Rio, Eagle Pass. You met with Border Patrol. You met with private
0: ranchers. How did that first of all, how did the tour come about and what were her takeaways? Eddie, I've hosted 17 of these border delegation trips. It's, it's, it's wild. Over 100 members of Congress, mostly Republicans. I've hosted three Democrats. I need to do more in that aspect of it. I think the next trip you'll see, if it's not a presidential, another presidential candidate, it'll be a bipartisan trip. But I've hosted 17 of these. And one of the things that came out as we're getting towards the growing towards the um, – the 2024 cycle is presidential candidates are starting to reach out. Everyone's running on the border security platform. And so they're reaching out and they're going, hey, Tony, will you host me? And so Nikki was the first one. Nikki Haley was the first one to do that. And I give her a lot of credit. I mean, one, uh, I mean, nobody really knows or understands this, but she she arrived at 1 a.m. that day, right from she's on the campaign trail, arrives at 1 a.m. We leave the hotel at 6 a.m. And then our first stop is Hondo. And then we go to Del Rio. Then we go to Eagle Pass, literally. And it's in my pickup truck. So she's in my pickup truck and we're driving around the district. That's how I got here. That's kind of my style. And we put 500 miles on the pickup truck. It was I on mean, that trip with on her. on that trip on that day alone. We left at 6 a.m. and we didn't get done. We had a couple events here in San Antonio. We didn't get done until I didn't get home until 10 o'clock. So, I mean, talk about putting in the work. And it wasn't this parachute in and give fancy speeches. It was mostly listening. Honestly, the, the the stop in Hondo, I thought, was really set the tone. We all know Hondo. We all know how close it is to Unite, uh, to San Antonio, but uh, but most people don't. Most people have never heard of it before, and they they don't they don't associate the border crisis with Hondo. But Hondo certainly does. And one of the things is the train, the Union Pacific train that comes through. One of the stops is in Hondo, and it causes a lot of a lot of disruption. So we met with um, the the judge and the sheriff and commissioners and ranchers, and you're just hearing from people, everyday people. And that was a good start to the day, if you will. And then we go to Del Rio. And this is what I've tried to do on every one of these trips is, hey, look, we're, we we're going to talk border security. You're going to get pictures of the wall and you're going to get all those things, but you're also going to get exposed to other parts of things that are happening on the border. So I was excited about this one and it didn't get a lot of coverage, but, but nonetheless, it's a seed I thought was, that was planted with Nikki was, um, the, uh, San Antonio shoes factory in Del Rio. I've been there. Uh, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. You know, over 500 people are employed there. So it's one of the largest employers in Del Rio, you know, Nancy, Nancy Jacobson runs it. She's a great CEO, uh, just a great atmosphere. Most of the people working there are women. They're Hispanic women. Uh, It's a manufacturing job. And so I wanted to highlight that there's other things happening as well. And so we visited that. I thought that was very powerful. And then we visited with some ranchers. We did a ride along with the sheriff. It's just I just wanted her to see it one day, you know, just give me one day, full day in the life of what it's like to live in, in Texas 23. So You would
1: naturally be the the go-to person. You have the largest stretch of southern border of any member of Congress. Our border is 2,000 miles long. That's right. And uh, Texas has 1,200 or so miles. And of the 1,200 miles in Texas, you have about 700? 823. But who's (laughs) counting? (laughs) <laughs> so she came back, and um, I want to play an, an audio clip for you. She came back from, well, it was actually at the Eagle Pass press conference, and um, I want to play this uh, clip from her, and I want to get you to respond to it on the on the other side. Sure.
2: You know, you should just know that he is the border king. I mean, because he's got 800 miles of the border. So there is no one that can ever say that they understand the border more than Tony Gonzalez. And if he is not in every single immigration conversation in Congress, something is wrong.
1: In that clip, what was unique about that was uh, not, not just her respect and deference for you, but also the fact that you should be at every table for every conversation on immigration. When President Biden came to the border, you were not at that table. He invited Congressman Vicente Gonzalez from McAllen He invited Congressman Henry Cuellar from Laredo and then Veronica Escobar from uh, El Paso. So why wouldn't he extend the invitation to you?
0: Yeah, that that was unfortunate. And uh, you've seen the White House have uh, unforced error after unforced error and it was the easiest thing to do would be to, to invite me on that trip and, and make sure I was part of it. I'm not going to embarrass the president of the United States. I've proven that. I've hosted him in Uvalde after the, uh, the horrific school shooting. I didn't embarrass him. We have differences. We have lots of differences on our policies, but he's the president of the United States, and of course I want to work together to find things. And, and you know what? I called him out for it too, and, they, and I'll give you a kind of a little bit more. When I hosted the president in Uvalde, I, at the end of that day, I hosted him for a full day. And at the end of that day, I pulled him aside and I said, Mr. President, now is in the time or place, but I would like to have a conversation with you about the border. And he pulls his aide across and he uh, over and he goes, uh, hey, I, I definitely want to get Tony in the White House so we can talk about the border. Great. Seven months go by and they basically ghost me. And I'm just every single time. And I get word about this trip before anyone else does, right? I mean, these are my people, right? So they're going, Hey Tony, do you know the president's coming down on, you know, whatever Saturday or whatever it is? I'm like, no, but thanks for letting me know. So we reach out to the White House and we go, I would like to be part of this trip. And they they never never respond. And then afterwards, I basically highlight, hey, he told me, face. he lied to my face. The president told me we were going to have this discussion. And here we still have it. And here he goes, you know, just outside of my district. I have 60 percent of El Paso County and doesn't even give me the courtesy to invite me. And then they came back with, hey, Tony, there wasn't enough room on Air Force One. <laughs> and I laugh and I go, well, first off, I didn't ask to be on Air Force One. I don't care about the peanuts. I don't care about the M&Ms. Uh, I just wanted to, ha- to have a conversation. and But what it did was, and this is important, it exposed them that they view this as a political problem, not a policy problem. So that's dangerous because they think they can just weather the political storm. Meanwhile, real people are getting hurt. I thought the old saying was good policy makes good politics. And wouldn't that apply in this case? You would think. You would think. But they have, um, the White House is really... There's several different factions in it that get pulled in different directions. But let me fast forward a little bit. So, of course, I go I get a lot of reactions. We're going, hey, why weren't you invited to this? And I'm just beating them up. You know, the president lied to my face. And so funny enough, and uh, I did a CNN hit. And that's what I say. And maybe an hour later, the phone rings and it goes, hey, uh, hey, Tony, the president's uh, the president's schedule is pretty packed. But would you be willing to meet with Susan Rice? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, the actual president of the United States? Yeah, I'd love to meet with uh, with Susan Rice. She's the senior policy, senior domestic policy advisor. And if you don't know anything about her, she was uh, Obama's right hand. She's very influential in a lot of different things. A very serious person. And um, so I'm going, wow, okay. And so we had a we had a we had a discussion afterwards. We had a we had a half hour meeting. I won't get into the details of it, but I thought that was very productive. And I thought there was an opportunity to, that we covered a lot of different ground on it. I, I say that to kind of going back to your clip on Nikki is I have forced myself been been active on getting involved in every conversation, whether that's on the Republican side in the House, Republican side in the Senate, Democrat side in the House, Democrat side in the Senate, or whether it's a White House is to sit down. And you know why, Eddie? Because my district is at the forefront of this. No one is impacted more by this border crisis than the 23rd district. Uvalde, Eagle Pass, Del Rio, El Paso, not to mention the communities, Presidio and, and, and Alpine. All, I mean, everybody. There's Hondo, you know, Canipa. There was a couple of you know uh, migrants found dead in the train in Canipa. It's literally something every single day. So I'm vested. I basically want to have this. And I want real solutions. The rhetoric, that doesn't, that doesn't help the people that I represent.
1: Well, uh, I'm a native of Del Rio, and um, I think we all remember the horrific video. I mean, Del Rio's population is between, what, 30 and 35,000? Yeah, that's right. And 15,000 Haitians show up under a bridge with no water, no restrooms, no way to feed people, change diapers. It was just a humanitarian nightmare. Uh, Even the mayor of Del Rio at the time was extremely frustrated. So... You, you mentioned uh, uh, Nikki Haley. So I want to take you now to a second clip and get your reaction to this.
2: People need to not expect us to just live with this. And I'll tell you, live one day on one of those ranches and see what they see and carry a gun like they have to and worry about whether their kids are safe and worry about whether their home's going to be broken into. If you would live like that, then leave it like this. If you would not live like that, don't make these families live like that. So my big question is, when is Biden coming to the border? We've given up on Kamala. When is Biden coming to the border? Secondly, when's Congress going to do something? Republicans and Democrats need to get in a room and get it done. They owe it to the American people. It's time that we see that happen.
1: You're one of those people that seems to be slightly optimistic that something can get done. What do you believe that, uh, because a lot of what we see is the Charlie Brown, Lucy pulling the football every time you think there's a bill that might go somewhere, uh, something happens and the deal falls apart. What do you think that Congress can reasonably get done in short order?
0: Yeah, uh, whether I wanted to or not, from day one being elected is my third year in Congress, uh, the border crisis in immigration is at my forefront every single day. And so uh, what you're going to see is in the House, we will pass a border security package uh, probably in May. And then that'll go over to Senate. That'll be very partisan package, though. It'll be shirts and skins and not even Henry Cuellar, I doubt. I mean, I won't speak for him, but I doubt even some of the other kind of pro-border security Democrats will even vote for this thing. That's how kind of on red meat it'll be, if you will. And and that's part of the goal in politics. It's always to kind of put the, the hot potato on somebody else. And then to blame, oh, look, see, you're the reason why this isn't done or that. And, and you just want you don't you just don't want the hot potato on you. But once again, how did that how does that move the ball forward? But you'll see the House pass a, a series of border border security package. I think it's a good start. It'll go over to the Senate, and then uh, and then we'll have to take it from there. But the next step, I think, after that is to focus on immigration. And I separate the two because they are two different topics. They are they're very closely related and one impacts the other, no doubt, but they're different. And, and what I always say is everybody should be absolutely against people coming over illegal, illegally into our country, folks on the terrorist watch list, uh, fentanyl that is killing our kids. Everyone should be against that. In the same breath, we can be for people that are coming over legally and wanting to live a better life. That is America. You know, give us your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That is a part of our, the birth of our nation's identity. We've always welcomed Immigrants. Now, I I separate illegal from legal. So let's have a legal route. Let's not punish people coming over legally. And and it's hard to do for anyone who doesn't understand it. You know it. You've lived it. I live it. They're two separate things. You can welcome, you can prevent bad actors from coming in, and you can welcome those that want to come and work and fill these jobs that no one else is doing. And also, be productive members. I'm not talking some of these these positions that, that sink things, right? I'm talking work visas. I think that makes sense to me.
1: I'm going to take you back to 1995 when Bill Clinton was president, Al Gore was vice president and Newt Gingrich was speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. In today's numbers, Border Patrol has uh, interdictions of, I believe, January of this year was about two hundred and twelve thousand. And that's all encompassing. That's. People who were captured, uh, people who raised their hand and surrendered themselves. That's total. In 1995, there were 300,000 interdictions in the year. Yeah. And at the 1995 State of the Union, this is what President Clinton said to the country. And I'd like to get your reaction to it.
3: All Americans not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace, as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop
1: it. And what you see there is about 30 seconds of a standing ovation in the, in the video. So uh, you, for your initial reaction to his
0: comments back then. I mean, he's spot on and and every administration has had to deal with the same problem, whether it was Clinton, whether it was Bush, whether it was Obama, whether it was Trump and whether it's Biden, every single one. The only difference is you deliver that speech today and you're labeled a MAGA Republican. I mean, that's where the other side has taken it in the the, the rhetoric in politics is so harsh right now. If you don't agree with every 100 percent of what I agree in, you're a socialist or you're a, you know, this extremist. And so I, I think it highlights these aren't new problems, honestly. These are problems that we, we've never seen it the way it is now. I mean, these are historic numbers. But you can also look at some solutions that worked previously. Call them whatever you want to call them. But these programs have worked I, I beat up the administration, all the, the Biden administration all the time because they're spending so much time focused on the illegal immigration aspect of it, trying to streamline the asylum process that's broken completely and, and, and focusing on that. Instead of uh, alleviating some of the stress through legal aspects, through work visas, finding ways that working with countries, this is something – I've had dinner with the president of Guatemala uh, twice when he was in Washington. I traveled to Guatemala and I had lunch with him when I, and it was a bipartisan group when we went to Guatemala. And I asked him, I go, Look, Mr. President, you know, uh, if, if someone from Guatemala comes over illegally, uh, will you take them back? Can we fly them back to Guatemala? He goes, absolutely, Tony. I'll take every single one of them. As long as you two things, as long as you help give me a, an outlet where po- folks can come over legally to work so I can funnel them that way, the, the, the right way. And two, all it would take would be a call from the president from Biden or he goes or Vice President Harris or Secretary Blinken or anyone, <laughs> basically. Right. So what does that tell you? The administration has given up on immigration, legal or otherwise. And I think there's an opportunity for Republicans to take this and be, be, the imagine that, imagine Eddie, if it was, if it was House Republicans that solved the immigration crisis.
1: Well, for a while, there were people that thought the President Trump was going to get to that point. Yeah. Um, but that was not the case. So you talked about programs and tools that we can use. Um, you have specifically talked about, and I believe uh, Nikki Haley did, too, when she was in Eagle Pass, having the cartels, uh, cartels labeled as terrorists. Now, that's not just name calling yeah. uh, that triggers uh yeah. a designation that brings with it tools and resources. Talk about that, if you will.
0: I I spent 20 years in the military. I spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know what war looks like. I hate war. I want to prevent war. And what is happening is this essentially war is starting to happen along the border. It's getting more unsafe. Smugglers are becoming more uh, they're not stopping. They're not they don't have any regard for human life or property anymore. It's very lawless and it's spreading. So uh, I think I think it's time to label cartels as terrorists. And, and, and I don't envision the Marines going in and seal, you know, seal team six going in. That's not what I envision. I envision in, enforcing some of the laws. And, and honestly, how you how you stop an organization or change an organization is through their money. You stop their money. You change their money, and then all of a sudden, they change their actions. And so, something has to give. And what we're seeing right now is it's we're going down the wrong way. And and honestly, these cartels they are no longer they are no longer doing illicit drugs and other activity. It's all smuggling. It's all human smuggling because it's more profitable and it's less risky. And they're subcontracting. The cartel is contracts out to a gang or an, a criminal organization uh, on, on the American side. And then that gang or, or organization gets on TikTok and Facebook and, you know, I'll offer you $1,000 a thousand dollar head. And, you know, some poor sucker who's a mother or a grandmother or a, a National Guardsman, everyday people scoop, you know, take the job. They get arrested. So we're never getting to the core of the problem. I just think so- something has to change. And, and I think that's a step in the right direction.
1: And it didn't used to be that way. The cartels sort of operated on on, on their own. Uh, Americans uh, traveled fairly uh, freely and safely in, in Mexico. But a lot of Americans, even those in the border towns of Texas, no longer go across like they used to. I mean, when I was growing up, you'd go across for a cocktail. You'd go across for a dinner. You'd go across on your... Your aunt might take you on your eighth birthday to go buy you something. Uh, Mine used to tell me, I'll buy you anything in this store. And, you know, you were uh, extremely thrilled. And later as an adult, you realized there was nothing in the store more than $3. (laughs) Exactly. But but there is a different situation. So I I know that this is an important designation. And how do you feel Congress is going to deal with this? Yeah, well,
0: let me let me go back to your point, because it's a very good point. And it's something I brought up with Lopez Obedor. I go, look, Mr. President, you have a beautiful country. And like you, as a as a kid, we would go to Monterrey with, and and we would visit family and it would be this whole trip and you can't do that anymore it's a different environment and and I brought it up to uh to the Mexican president I go because he's making it say we're we're more safe than even the United States and you know just this whole posturing of things and I go you and I know this is a beautiful country however most Americans do not feel safe in your country and so what can we do to change that and I gave prime examples you know here you had Americans killed in broad daylight and nobody blinked an eye. There's there's been plenty of cases of Americans that are missing. And so what I'm basically was trying to get to is this is a partnership, whether you like it or not, whether we like it or not, we're we're neighbors. And the stronger our relationship is, the better. Now, what are we doing in Congress? I mean, I've been pushing very hard in this border security package to have real tangible things that I think can make a difference. And we'll see how it all shakes out by the end of next month. But um, it, it can't just be there has to be some some things that, that can that have some teeth to it. Uh, and, and honestly, the enforcement of laws is the biggest one is is how do you how do you hold the smugglers accountable? And I'll go back to the incident in Ozona so that that smuggler kills two Americans. He kills a couple of uh, of um, of uh, uh, migrants. And yet he still hasn't been charged yet. That doesn't make any sense to me. You've got all this. All the all the facts are there. And so these are some of the things I think we need to throw the books at some of these smugglers and go enough's enough. So we have we have
1: have a lot of these problems with Mexico. But Mexico, on the on the good side, is our state's number one trading partner, sure. our country's number two trading partner. There's been a lot of talk from pharmaceutical companies about with the supply chain issue uh, during the pandemic about moving relocating, reshoring some of their operations from uh, China and Asia over here, and that would be most likely end up in Mexico. What other positive aspects do you see uh, in, in our trading relationship with Mexico?
0: I mean, Mexico's a gem. Mexico's a gem. It's it, It's an untapped opportunity, you know, but the United States spends so much time in Europe and Asia and the Middle East, we really have neglected Central and South America. We're talking Mexico, so we're talking North America even, right? right. I mean, we have really neglected this hemisphere. And so uh, I took a trip recently, I, I took a trip to Monterrey and I visited with the Mayor Colosio and I visited with business leaders. And one of the things that we that we walked through was, uh, and Monterrey is a beautiful, really large city. It's larger than Los Angeles, So here we have a city larger than Los Angeles, just a few hours away, an hour flight from San Antonio. And uh, one of the things that we talked about, I'm going, some of the basics, right? I'm going, how do you get your energy? And over half of their energy comes from natural gas from Texas. And so these are the fundamental aspects to any kind of uh, economic development. I'm going, how do you get your water? Water is very important there in Monterrey. It's
1: a scarcity. And they had an issue where the...
0: um The Topo Chico plant
1: had uh, shut down for a little while because of the lack of water.
0: That's right. That's right. So there's so many things to work on, but you also see the growth. You mentioned kind of the reshoring. You know, Tesla just opened up a plant. There's a lot of manufacturing opportunities here. Every large company you talk to, they're all saying, oh, yeah, of course, we're reshoring uh, to other parts. But those are words. How do you take a large factory in Asia and put it in Mexico when you don't have security and water and energy and you know, infrastructure, transportation, like, like all in workforce, I mean, all these things. So it's, it's almost like we're, we're behind the power curve, but if we can figure that out, it could really be a win-win, not only for Mexico, but for the United States. And, and I think that's where I'd like the the relationship to go instead of us being adversaries and oh, you're, you're terrible and blaming each other. How do we fix this? How do we get to uh, kind of tackling some of the big issues that ultimately, I think the, the stronger Mexico is, and all of a sudden, you know, that's going to curb some of the illegal uh, illicit activity as well.
1: The governor of Nuevo León, Samuel García, has sure. talked about uh, wanting to build a high-tech corridor from Monterrey, Mexico, uh, up through San Antonio and up to Austin. Yeah. Um, and that seems to have a lot of promise.
0: I think it's brilliant. I mean, you look at it just culturally south texas and northern mexico are the same people i mean we're basically cowboys we don't like the central government usually we don't like washington we don't like mexico city we're business oriented we kind of uh are on the front that we're on the border alone and unafraid and usually like willing to to go it our own way there's a, we're the same people so how do we work together to kind of solve this and and i think um and he's a young guy too, really young guy. Colosio is a young guy. And so uh, I've, I've had dinner with both of them and, I, and I'll host them for different things. But I think this is where you kind of build this relationship out and find these um, these ways to collaborate. The conversation just can't be about security. It's important. It's vital. But it has to be other aspects of it, too. Education. I visited the, um, the tech um, in Monterrey, Monterey Tech. I mean, there's just all these wonderful things that are happening. How do we collaborate more? So uh,
1: the presidential election in Mexico is every six years. And in 2024, it coincides with our election. When you hear conversations about uh, who's going to run for president in Mexico, uh, the two people you just mentioned, Governor Garcia from Nuevo León and Mayor Colosio from Monterrey, their names keep coming up.
0: You see them as prospective candidates. Uh, if you think, if you think, uh, United States politics is, is complicated, try Mexican politics, <laughs> man, it gets, it gets ugly <laughs> fast. Um, uh, I don't, I don't even pretend to, uh, to have scratched the surface, but what I will say, both those individuals, they're young, they seem capable and they seem eager to have a different relationship with the United States, but it's about creating partnerships and finding trust. Everything's about trust. How do you build partnerships and and go from there? When I was in, going back to Mexico City, when I was in Mexico City, the uh, the foreign minister was 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 a central role into this dialogue, and he is another prime candidate uh, for, for the next presidency. But regardless of who it is or how it, how it shakes out, I think it's important that we have lawmakers like myself and others that travel to Mexico, that host folks from Mexico and have real conversations to go, how do we move the ball forward? And not just a, you will do this or I'm going to hit you over the head with a stick, right? It has to be security is important, but so many other things are as well. We talked about the stretch of border that we have, that you have
1: in your congressional district, but I'm not sure that we talked about the size of your district, because it stretches from San Antonio going west to Del Rio Eagle Pass and all the way up to El Paso. Paso. And is it, it, prior to redistricting, I thought it was the geographically largest congressional district in Congress. Is it still?
0: It is, other than uh, members that have a state like Alaska or, you know, uh, North Dakota. But there's only one congressman. Yeah, one congressman for the whole state. But uh, no, this district's larger than 30 states. Takes me 10 hours to get from one end to the other.
1: It wouldn't be proper to have a conversation with you without talking about Uvalde. Sure. uh, How... Uh, I know you go there often. How are the people of Uvalde?
0: We're still healing. I mean, we I, I literally was in Uvalde County two days ago, and uh, everyone is still healing from things. And, and I, I would say the biggest thing that people don't realize, this is the, the biggest thing that people don't realize, is this border crisis is impacting Uvalde to this day. And I'll give you an example. So imagine and and imagine you are a father and your son or daughter or or your children go to school at Uvalde. And fortunately, they weren't they weren't injured during uh, the Robb elementary shooting. But your kids still go there. And imagine you get a text message that says your children's school. It could be even here. But let's just say it's there. You get a text message that your school is going into lockdown. I'm a father of six. If I get a text message that that my kid's school is going to lockdown, I'm freaking out. And I'm going, what's going on? Imagine you're getting that text message every single week, because that is what is happening. These smugglers are, are blowing through town. All the schools go into lockdown. And you're essentially re-victimized over and over again, whether you were involved with it or not. I mean, you have towns like Canipa and Dehenis and Sabinau. That they weren't directly involved in the, the Rob stuff, but there's not one person that doesn't, I guarantee you, if you're a father or a mother, there's not one person that doesn't think about your kids as you're dropping them off at school, just with everything that's happening. And imagine you're getting a text message every week that the school's going into lockdown. A lot of t- a lot of people don't realize before Rob happened, the, the school had gone into lockdown over 40 times. So it was almost this numbness, and that's what I worry about the most, this, like, this is normal, oh, it's just another smuggler, or, you know, it's just a a, a high-speed chase. It's just a different world that we live in. You so can get lulled into it. You can get lulled into it, all of us, yeah. Now now take it a step further. Imagine you're one of these kids. Imagine when you're one of these kids that you're growing up going, oh, the school's going in lockdown. Oh, it's just another lockdown. I mean, it's just... These are the psychological issues that are happening with all these families that going back to kind of hosting Nikki Haley, even she, even though she was only with me for a day, she got to see one day what it's like and hear from some of those families and see the text messages that they get from their school that says, hey, we're going into lockdown and so this is the powerful part about it, whether you're a presidential candidate or whether you're a member of Congress or a candidate running for something else. I think it's important we have a real conversation on these border communities. It's not just what you see on Fox or what you don't see on CNN. So uh,
1: a lot of us thought that Uvalde was going to be a turning point, And then came the shooting in Nashville at the Christian School um, and then the bank shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, You took some criticism for uh, supporting a reform bill after Uvalde. What would you like for your constituents to know that was in the bill, that was not in the bill, and why you voted for it?
0: It's pretty simple. I took that vote for, I I voted uh, for the Safer Community Act for two reasons, and I'd vote for it again today, tomorrow, and the next day. One, it, uh, it, it would have prevented the Uvalde shooting. Boom, right there. If that bill was law before the eval shooting, it would have prevented the eval shooting. If that's not enough for you, man, it's hard to go to number two. But if, if that isn't enough for you, number two, it would not, it did not and will not infringe on the Second Amendment. How do I know that? Because the folks that helped craft that were the most Second Amendment focused people I knew. And so uh, I think you can do both. But in this world, you know, in politics, they take something and then no one calls it the Safer's Community Act. Everyone calls it the gun vote. Even though the bulk of that the bulk of that uh, policy was to uh, to tackle mental health, the largest investment in mental health in our nation's history. But I also say this is another problem that we have, Eddie. Is you have and I do it sometimes, like we all do it. Like the politicians go, "Oh, I helped pass this bill. It would have done these different things." That's all great, but if until that those resources make it down to our schools or to our communities, it might as well not even exist. And so one of the things I, um, I had a hearing with uh, Attorney General Garland about two weeks ago, and everyone's beating him up over all these different things. The Department of Justice isn't the most popular position right now. And I decided to go a different route. I go, this is a problem I'm having. And, and oh, by the way, when you happened, he was the very first appointed or elected official to call me. I, I wouldn't have guessed Garland was going to be the one to call me. He called me and he goes, Tony, whatever you need, you have it. And you know what? He kept his word. And so that's the relationship we had. So I asked him, I go, here's the deal. We, I, You know, I helped pass the Safer's Community Act, largest investment in, in our nation's history. And this is what is happening. I had six different areas put in for these stop school violence grants and cops grants. I had Bear County Sheriff's. I had Medina County. I had the um, Divine ISD, uh, Securo. Um, I had uh, Marfa and we had El Paso County. I put letters of support behind him and the DOJ denied them. So I'm going, this is the problem. You know, you're saying we did all these wonderful things, but for X, Y, or Z, you're denying these claims, you're denying these grants. And ultimately, the schools that need them aren't getting them. And so he agreed that we'll work together and kind of fix that. But this is kind of the second and third tier stuff. Everyone wants to talk about assault bans and all this other, like the shiny object, if you will. No one wants to do the work from start to finish to go, hey, you know, and I, I look at my school. My wife reminds me all the time. Hey, Tony, you're doing all this stuff for all these other places. What about our own kids? What is, What is our school district doing? So I, I try to look at it through that lens, too, is to go, how do we make sure that that money gets it from the federal government? Ultimately. Into the school's hands where they have doors that lock, where they have a resource officer on campus, where they have, you know, a, a, an entry point or, or a fencing or whatever it may be. But just to make
1: it clear... I'm a law-abiding citizen. Doesn't stop me from buying a pistol to protect myself and my family. Doesn't stop me from buying a hunting rifle. Nope. Or a shotgun. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, where are the Where are the complaints coming from?
0: The complaints are, and you know, by the way, no one no one talks about this, but there's been at least a dozen cases, according to the FBI, that have been stopped. Similar cases to the Uvalde shooting that have been stopped due to this this bill already becoming law. So, I mean, there you go. Not only would it have stopped the Uvalde shooting, it stopped a dozen similar Uvalde shootings since then, less than a year. But it becomes a rub when people essentially it gets labeled a gun vote and you've got one side that goes finally a gun vote and you got other side that goes, no, I'm against the gun vote. And nobody looks at the nobody looks at what's in it, per se. So it's it's really about messaging and, and the parties kind of dividing one another. That's one. And the other the other part of it, too, is people feel. And it's true. No matter what you give, it'll never be enough. And so the other side is always asking for more and you're always trying to give less. I get that in a negotiation. I'm trying to keep our kids safe. And I go, if this piece of legislation keeps our kids safe, I'm in as long as it doesn't infringe on the Second Amendment.
1: So, again, changing gears, it it seems as if the uh, uh, 2024 presidential election is already underway. Uh, We've had a couple of announced candidates, including Nikki Haley, uh, also from South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott and um, and a few others. Uh, What are you going to look for in the next nominee uh, on the Republican side for president?
0: I think there's an opportunity um, next year for the Republican Party to really deliver. And I'm looking for someone that is ultimately going to put this country back on the right track. Um, and, 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 and we willing to, you know, come to the district, see it through our lens. Uh, the topics that are important to us, border security, immigration, trade, uh, all these things are important. They can't just be for too long. We've had these, these presidential folks that from a top down approach and you're seeing it with Biden, you know, they, they'll never come visit. If they do, they just pop in for a little bit. They're not real. They're not, they're not giving us tangible things. Uh, the, the, there's too much at stake right now. not only from a domestic standpoint, look at national security. I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at what's happening in Taiwan. Look at what's happening in the Middle East, not to mention our backyard. I mean, you just had Honduras stop recognizing Taiwan, and now they're recognizing China. I mean, these are direct threats to some of our things. So I'm looking for a president that can deliver, that can bring this country back in a manner that is positive. Personally, I I prefer less of the rhetoric and more of the, you know, Unity, uh, governing is tough. Uh, finding solutions is tough. Demonizing one another—that's easy. But uh, I, I really, I really look forward to uh, to Republicans winning back not only not only the Senate but hopefully the White House and, and then really get to work.
1: You mentioned China, and I'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk yeah. about uh, China, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and, and more on the foreign policy side. But um, I greatly appreciate uh, your time today. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Beyond the Bite is produced by Alreda Strategic Partners in San Antonio, Texas. Edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. If you would like to be notified of new episodes, please like, share, and subscribe. Until next time, I'm Eddie Aldrete.